the Gerontological Society of America Momentum Discussions. Welcome to the Momentum Discussion podcast series, where researchers, educators, and practitioners stimulate dialogue on trends with great momentum to advance gerontology. This podcast is one of three in a series about immunization with content developed by GSA and supported by Securus. Welcome to the podcast. My name is Joanna Chase, Associate Professor at the University of Missouri Sinclair School of Nursing. Today, we'll be talking about the vaccine development process, and I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Gordon Douglas, Professor Emeritus of Medicine at Weill Cornell Medical College, former president of Merck Vaccines, and current chair of the GSA National Adult Vaccination Program Workgroup. Welcome, Dr. Douglas. Thank you, Joanna. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Uh, Could you tell us how you got interested in immunization? Yes, when I was growing up, the biggest problem that we faced as a young boy and a teenager was polio. I mean, the big polio epidemics were occurring after the Second World War. And, you know, we had a president who had polio, and it was a terrible disease because of the paralysis and death in a small percentage of people, but it was it was a terrible disease. And, the, you know, you couldn't, you, it was thought to be transmitted in the summertime that swimming pools were dangerous, so your mother would not let you go to the swimming pool and that kind of thing. It was scary. We were frightened as kids. My senior year in college, because I can still visualize the headlines, the newspaper, polio vaccine approved. Wow. That was originally the salt vaccine and the statement vaccine came along a little bit later. But it was it was just such a miracle. You know, I said to myself, well, what's a vaccine? How does it work? You know, what's a virus? How does that infect a person? So I got very interested in that. And one, you know, even though there are a few starts and stops along the way, ended up in the field of infectious diseases. And then my special interest was in vaccines. Wow. A lot of historical background there in terms of seeing all of these vaccine development. I mean, just from the start. Yeah, I even remember when I was growing up as a youth, we didn't have any vaccines and we didn't have any antibiotics. And that's not that long. You know, it's a while ago, but it's not that long ago. <laughs> um, and so this just, it just represented a huge, huge advance for me. Wow. So, so during your eight years as president, Merck launched new pediatric combination vaccines, vaccines against haemophilus influenza type B, varicella and hepatitis A, and initiated research efforts towards rotavirus, shingles, and human papillomavirus vaccines. So can you share what those first phases of vaccine development look like? Sure. I, I can I even back up just slightly. When, when I was a medical school researcher, I did clinical studies on vaccines, clinical trials, and that kind of thing. But I still didn't really know how vaccines were developed. It was just a company had a vaccine, and we tested it in, in a clinical study. So I really got interested, and that's one of the reasons I left academia and went to, uh, went to industry. And, and one of the one of the things, the fascinating things behind all those vaccines is what's called the preclinical research stage. 
you have somebody, and usually it's a university investigator gets an idea as to he may be studying a virus or a bacterium and gets an idea that in some way he might be able to make a vaccine that would prevent infection with that. Maybe he's looking at a part of the virus or a part of the bacterium or something and would use that as the, uh, as the immunizing agent. And so that period of time goes on for a long time. You know, it's interesting in the, in the you know, we all have heard a lot about COVID yes. vaccine development in the past couple of years and a year and a half. And everybody, uh, you know, just said it was a miracle as to how fast it was developed in 11 months. And there's no question that the clinical development was done very efficiently and very rapidly, but no shortcuts were taken. And you have to, what they never tell you is that the basic research that led to the possibility of this being an effective vaccine took place over the previous 20 years. So the vaccine, if we, if you include the basic research that goes into the vaccine, plus the clinical research, plus the product development research, you put those all together, it took a lot longer than 11 months to develop those vaccines. That's an excellent. We were very lucky that they were ready to go yeah. at the time that the COVID virus was discovered. Okay, excellent. That's an excellent point. So a lot of that preclinical work was... The whole number of vaccines that we developed when I was at Merck. And some of those went way back. And I know that the chickenpox vaccine, for example, took about 15 years of preclinical research before we, we could do the clinical trials. And it was similar with the, with the other vaccines. So what happened? about 15 years total. So what happens then? Including the, the, the uh, preclinical research. So then what happens after the preclinical research? Well, you know, and in, in, in the preclinical research, you can't just think that something will make a vaccine. You actually have to test it in a number of both in vitro, that is in a test tube, but you also have to test it in certain animal systems. So you, and you ha it has to show that, yeah, hey, really, this thing work, looks like it's going to work. We know it works in mice. Let's go ahead and test it in humans. And you cannot do those first human studies until you have all that data. You go to the FDA and get approval to do a phase one clinical trial. And, you know, the clinical research is divided into a phase one, phase two, phase three. And the phase one trial is done in a small number of subjects. You might start with 10. You might start with 20. But it's a small number. It might get up to 100 eventually or maybe even 200. But it would be in a small number. And you're looking primarily for safety. You're also going to test whether or not the subjects that you're giving the vaccine, the you know, potential vaccine to, are developing an immune response. Because if they, you know, there's an old saying in vaccine development that monkeys lie 50% of the time and mice lie 100% of the time. And what that means is just because it worked in mice doesn't mean it's going to work in humans. Right. So you have, but you have to prove safety is number one. And then immunogenicity is number two. And only if you satisfy both of those requirements, do you go to a phase two trial. 
Okay, so what's a phase two trial? Well, phase two trial is expanded. You're into larger numbers of subjects and you do some dose ranging because you, you know, you have to think, we, you don't really know what the proper dose of the vaccine is. So you do, um, maybe you tried a particular dose, which was your best guess in phase one, or you might try a higher dose and a lower dose and see if it makes any difference and try to get an idea of what the optimal dose would be. You also might try it in different kinds of subjects, different kinds of people. For example, maybe your phase trial, one trial was all men. Are you sure better in phase two, put it in some, you know, give it to some women. And you might make sure that you've tried um, it in the Hispanic population, in the African-American population, and in other uh, subsets of our American population. So that you expand that and only, I mean, basically what you're doing in a phase two trial is getting ready for phase three. Because phase three is the definitive trial upon which licensure or approval of the vaccine rests. And so that has to be done absolutely perfectly and beautifully. And the other thing I should say is simultaneously, you're doing product development. The laboratory scientist was able to make this thing in his laboratory in a beaker or in a flask or something, you know, by fairly simple technology. When you get to giving it to humans in a, in a trial, you've got to have what it, what it, the, the same material that you would be ready to sell. And that means you've got to be able to make it in enormous quantities. It's got to be made very consistently. Every batch is going to be exactly the same as the prior batch. Um, and you've got to be able to, for example, just a simple task. It sounds simple. But it's not. <laughs> Supposing you want to fill a million vials with this vaccine after its license, you've got to be able to fill each vial with exactly the same amount of vaccine. There's got to be the same material in each vial, and none of them can be contaminated with bacteria or something else. And that is an engineering feat of some significance. Yeah, and that alone. That alone sounds like a miracle. The amount of precision that goes into that part of the vaccine development. If you, walk, if you walk into a vaccine manufacturing plant, it looks like a nuclear power plant. <laughs> I mean, they're big vats and great big vessels for holding the vaccine. There are pipes running all over the place, and it's temperature controlled, and, and uh, special kinds of water are used for cleaning the facilities and so on and so forth. I mean, it's a very complex manufacturing process. The material that you use in your phase three trial has to be the same material that you're going to sell. If you say, supposing the trial goes on for a couple of years and you've learned how to make it a little bit better. So you go to the FDA and you say, well, I'm going to make it a little differently than I did for the trial. And they say no, because if you change the way you make it, it's not the same vaccine. And therefore, you have not tested it in humans, and you can't, they will not license it. Wow. That's you, can't, you have to, that, the, the, one of the complex things here is you have to think, you have to develop the product simultaneously with the clinical studies, and you have to reach 
final product definition before you do your clinical trial. So, you know, you, you mentioned the phase three trials and uh, the phase three trial design and COVID vaccines were obviously in the news very frequently. Many people signed up for those phase three trials and there was intentional recruitment in a number of different communities that have traditionally not been represented in trials. And you spoke a little bit about that for some of the phase two part of the vaccine development, but could you talk a little bit about the importance of phase three trial design and how to get it right? Well, I think earlier in the history of vaccines, the history of drug developments, people didn't pay enough attention to the distribution of various subsets of our population in the clinical trials. You know, you, you have to, um, in this instance, a, a great deal of attention was paid to make sure that roughly 50% of the participants in the trial were women, to make sure that as many as possible over the age of 50 could be in the trial because we knew early that coronavirus was, was killing primarily older people. And so you had to have older people in the trial. And that's important immunologically because we know that older people don't respond as well to vaccines as younger people do. So then, you know, that becomes very obvious. You might think that um, people of Asian descent, people of, uh, African descent, uh, people of Hispanic descent might all respond the same. And that, that, that's, you know, in general, probably true, but you don't know it until you test it. An old rule in vaccines is, you know, show me the data and I'll believe you. You know, yeah, I, I think that's a good idea, but show me the data and I'll believe you. And so all of that was done very carefully in these phase three products. One of the things I'd like to say is that these phase three trials, particularly the Moderna and the Pfizer, were superbly run trials. They both had about 45,000 subjects in them. They were done in multiple countries, multiple sites in each country, and each site had to do the study exactly the way it was done in every other site. Otherwise, you couldn't compare the data. And they did it. They pulled, you know, and in a short period of time, they did this remarkable thing. Well, these were some of the largest definitive trials that had ever been done. They were done beautifully in a short period of time, and they answered the question that they were asking that the, the trial was designed to do. So it was, um, they, were, they were just a remarkable, remarkable trials, and they got a remarkable result. One of the interesting things is two different companies planning two different trials that actually did some things a little bit differently. But if you look at the data that came out of it, I mean, how many infections occurred in the vaccine group versus the placebo group, how many got seriously ill, uh, how many were hospitalized, those kinds of things. The data was identical in the two trials. Wow. And that's very unusual. Wow. I've seen um, two trials done the same product with data quite different. So you're just talking about this massive scale of collaboration across the world is, is really amazing. I mean, would you have ever imagined this as that, that young adult or that kid growing up during the polio times? No, I mean, uh, absolutely not. I mean, the, the original polio trials were all done here, and, uh, but they were big trials. They were big trials, but they weren't as carefully done as 
the ones that I just mentioned, the Jennifer I mean, if you want a, an example of how to do a trial well, look at one of these two. Wow. They're really they're the gold standard now. So then after phase three, you know, some people might think, okay, these vaccines are okay now, everything's approved. Is, is that it? Or is there continued monitoring of these vaccines? Well, you know, we're, we're, we're actually living through this because people say, well, the trial's done, data look good, the vaccine should be licensed, should, you know, for, approved for general use, and then a physician can use it in any way they want once, it, once it's licensed or According, so they should be using it according to the label. That is what the FDA approves is used for. But as you know, what happened here was this thing called emergency use authorization. And the reason for that is that the FDA, in contrast to regulatory agencies in other countries, goes through all the data themselves. Now, let me explain that a little bit. They don't trust anybody to do it. See, the company, remember, the company has a bias. They want the vaccine approved. And even though the people in the company are very honest and et cetera, et cetera, they just inherently are biased. You can't, you can't take, you can't change that. So they do a lot of things to, pro, to, to, to prevent bias from entering into the results of the study. For example, there's an independent body called the Data and Safety Monitoring Board. And it's made up of experts, you know, people with like, kind of like my background, who um, look, they're not blinded. And remember, the investigators are blind. As they, they, either the subject, the doctor who's taking care of the patient, or the investigator who's monitoring the study, they, none of them know who got vaccine and who got placebo. But the Data Safety Monitoring Board knows, and they're watching it all the time. And if so, if a safety problem occurred, they can stop this. They have the authority to stop the study. And the company doesn't even get involved in that. So they have so you, the public should be assured that this is a completely independent body of several, you know, infectious disease experts looking at the data. And if there's a, if the if the vaccine is highly effective, they can stop the study and then you recommend usage of it, or they can stop it if there's a safety problem. There's another body called a medical review committee that looks at the data. The, the, the company may say, "Well, we have these hundred patients who we think have severe COVID." Well, this other body reviews these cases and makes a judgment as to whether they're severe COVID or not. Do they meet the criteria for severe or moderate or mild COVID? Or they don't have COVID at all. So they make that decision, not the company. So all of these things are handled in a way in which bias can't creep into the study. It's done very carefully. And um, it, it, it makes for really remarkable studies. And the interesting thing is, these studies showed, as you know, you know, 90, low 90s percent efficacy at preventing COVID illness in these subjects. After this, the, the vaccine was licensed, we do a different kind of study called an effectiveness study. So the vaccine effectiveness 
was shown in, in for the first data that came out of Israel because you know it's a small country and they vaccinated their population very fast for a significant amount of it. Um, and they showed 90 low 90 percent effectiveness in you know the first four or five million patients, people who got the vaccine. And so that in the real world, the vaccine was working exactly the same way as the efficacy studies had predicted. And you can't you put those two studies together. The efficacy study, which is the you know pre-licensure, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial, and the effectiveness study, which is real-world, how's it working, together and you get the same data, that's really powerful information. Wow. Well, um, and what else do you wish people knew about the vaccine development process? I mean, you covered a lot. <laughs> One of the things that I have emphasized so far, I think, is the complexity of the task and the thoroughness of the task and the thoroughness in which these vaccines have been studied before they're put in people. We mentioned a little bit about you get this emergency use authorization and you can argue, well, why isn't the vaccine fully approved since the trial that, that leads to approval has already been done and we know the data? And the FDA says, no, we don't really know all the data yet because we haven't waited long enough. They'd like to see, I mean, on their old standard was they want to see data a year later. How's the vaccine holding up a year later? Are there any other safety concerns that have come up in that year time? And then they get grant you a uh, full licensure. Well, you know, the Pfizer vaccine just got full licensure. And that was about nine months after. So they shortened that a little bit, but they have nine months of data to do that. And they, of course, the vaccine been in 160 million people. So you had a tremendous amount of information. So what would you say then to new practitioners or researchers who are then interested in aging and immunization? Well, I think there are several vaccines that are really important in older people. And traditionally, the one that's been the most important has been influenza, because influenza, like COVID, has a disproportionate effect in the older population and actually causes pneumonia, causes heart attacks, it kills people. It's a serious problem. And so we pushed for immunizing people with influenza vaccine. But I should just say, and we've made some progress in that today, about somewhere around two-thirds of the population, the older population, is immunized every year. We'd like to move that number up higher. But one of the problems is but the vaccine is not as effective as it should be. It's pretty good. But on average, it only prevents about 50% of infections, illness in adults. Uh, it does, um, when they do get ill, they tend to get a milder illness than um, they would without the vaccine. But it's still not as, it's nowhere near as good as COVID vaccine. And it's nowhere near as good as some of the other vaccines we have, like tetanus and measles and so on and so forth. Uh, so we're really interested in improving that vaccine. In the last few years, there have been significant improvements in the influenza vaccine. 
there are there's a higher dose version version of it which is more effective and we've shown that the, the more you get a, a bigger immune response and you get a higher level of protection against infection and illness um there's one that has an adjuvant which is a substance which um makes the vaccine more immunogenic that is it produces a higher immune response and there's another one that's made in um most influenza vaccines are made in eggs and there's one that's made by um recombinant dna technology which means that it makes a uh, higher amount of protein in a um and does not involve any uh, any egg products in the final vaccine and that's an advantage yeah those, those three vaccines are actually improved they have enhanced protective effect but we still need we need a vaccine that would protect against all strains of influenza and would be more efficacious and there's a lot of work going on in that area but there are other vaccines that are important in adult shingles vaccine for example hepatitis b in certain parts of the population and i should mention the pneumococcal vaccine which is a antibacterial vaccine pneumo the pneumococcus is the most important cause of pneumonia in adults and that vaccine protects against pneumonia in adults and is a really important vaccine so we're working hard to improve immunization rates with these vaccines and to improve the vaccines themselves. For example, the shingles vaccine, there was an earlier shingles vaccine that was not as effective as the one that's currently out. And it's, um, you know, it's a two-dose vaccine that's highly effective. And even in older, it's been shown to be really effective in older people, that's people above the age of 80. Wow. That's, oh, wow. Wow. So I'm just listening to you and, and the story of, you know, your career and how you became interested in all this, all of the innovation that's happened over your career. Do you have any sort of reflections about, you know, where we're going in the future? I mean, you mentioned a little bit about uh, the influenza vaccine and all the new vaccine vaccines that are coming out. But, you know, is there anything that you'd like to leave our listeners with regarding immunization? Yeah, I think the one thing that's a little disappointing to me is that I think many people today don't appreciate how important vaccines are. You know, um, when I was growing up, I had measles, I had mumps, I had rubella, yeah, I had chickenpox, I had scarlet fever. I had always kids don't get any of these diseases. Wow. They don't get meningitis. Yeah. Um, you know, up until the beginning of the 20th century, about 25% of all children born worldwide died before the age of five from infectious diseases. Wow. That no longer happens. It's really rare. And it's, it's rare for people, for children to get sick today. The younger parents don't really appreciate that because they don't know the diseases. Um, and I, so I think the one message I'd like to say is that I think... Um, People should just back up and realize that vaccines are the most important, most significant medical advance that human beings have come up with. It saved more lives than any other measure 
in medicine more lives than heart surgery or treatment for hypertension or any other thing you can mention. Um, the, the, uh, we've eliminated smallpox, which was a terrible, terrible disease for centuries. We've eliminated polio in this country. We've nearly eliminated measles. We've eliminated in this country, but there are imported cases every now and then. So we just eliminated these diseases that were widely prevalent. It's had a miraculous effect on the health of people. I think people are, one of the reasons people are bigger today is they don't get a whole bunch of infections when they're kids, which stop them from growing. You know, it's just, it's just been, um, it's had a miraculous effect. And um, I think that, uh, and we've seen it in this COVID epidemic. I mean, these, these vaccines are incredibly good, incredibly safe. And people should appreciate the uh, the effort that's gone in, you know, the effort's gone into it, and the effect that they can produce on their lives. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Douglas, for spending some time with us today to talk about vaccine development. To learn more about GSA's work on immunization, please visit navp.org or email navp at geron.org. Thank you, Joanne. Thank you. To learn more about the Gerontological Society of America, visit geron.org. The Gerontological Society of America was founded in 1945 to promote the scientific study of aging cultivate excellence in interdisciplinary aging research, and education to advance innovations in practice and policy. For more information about GSA, visit geron.org.